In the introduction to this retreat on the first evening, I spoke a little about the emphasis that the Buddha gave in this path to cultivating the qualities of heart and mind that are ennobling, that no, that are bring nobility into our life. And in a very real way, this emphasis upon this cultivation is, of course, a direct means to relinquishment of that which is not ennobling. We cultivate the skillful, the wholesome, and in the light of that, the grip of that which is more unwholesome or unskillful begins to fall away. Now, in the range of lists you find within this teaching, one of the lists really brings together these qualities that, as the Buddha said, adorn the heart. They beautify the mind. And one of those lists is called the paramis, often translated as the perfections. That's a fairly daunting word to begin with that can set off all kinds of echoes of perfect. (laughs) Perfections in this sense means that these qualities are brought to a depth of unshakability. That is what perfections means. And yet these qualities are also presented, you know, these perfections don't suddenly arrive out of nowhere. They are born of the cultivation, the the development, the nurturing, the very path of development. Now, in this teaching, the, the Buddha rested the whole of this path upon two primary dimensions. One, the dimension of sila, or ethics, and the other is the dimension of dana, or generosity. Now, I think many people, when they've heard teachings around, around this path, often see it as a sort of threefold path, that there is integrity, then there is samadhi, the whole meditative development, and then there is panya, or insight. But actually, the way it is taught more traditionally is this is a fourfold path. And the very foundation of all meditative development rests upon a generous heart rests upon a generous mind. I would bring forward a question that we could reflect on, is what does the mind of a Buddha look like? What does the mind of a Buddha look like? Because, you know, we hear about, you know, this has been let go of, greed, hatred, delusion is gone, you know, Grasping is uprooted, you know, ignorance has been dissolved. I doubt that that leaves a vacuum behind it. So what does the mind of a Buddha look like? And very often when the Buddha described this whole understanding of awakening, he he didn't describe it as a state, some kind of experience but as a development, as a fruition, and actually you could say that the mind of a Buddha looks like the ten paramis brought to fruition. 
The way these ten perfections are taught of generosity, of seal, of renunciation, of insight, of energy, of patience, truthfulness, determination, metta, equanimity. These qualities are also said to be very much the fabric of compassion. That compassion is not a one-dimensional state either. That compassion is also the fruition of these qualities. Much of our practice, much of our path actually pivots around the exploration, the development of these qualities moment to moment. So this morning I want to give a little bit of attention to this quality of generosity. What does a generous heart look like in our practice, in our lives? Now, if you go to Asia, and I know many of you have been to Asia, you, you see the way that dana, dana or generosity is, is often seen as a devotional practice. It is a way of supporting the monastics, supporting the teachings, supporting the path. But in Asia, too, the cultivation of generosity is seen so profoundly as a practice of happiness. Now, in the West, we've, we have, I think many people have also formed a certain relationship, especially to this word dana, often thinking of it particularly as material dana. You know, you go into any meditation center, you see all the dana baskets, the dana notices, and amazingly to me, we spend like 10 minutes at the end of retreats giving dana talks, whereas actually we should probably spend the entire first three days talking about generosity. Because what is pointed to in the Buddhist tradition, of course, is dana has, it is not just about material generosity, it is about something much deeper than either a devotional practice or material giving. I feel the Buddha spoke about generosity and taught generosity as an insight practice as a practice of liberation. Its intent, what is, what is the teaching of generosity really there for? It is as an insight practice. It is there actually to question and to challenge any sense of possessiveness, any sense of holding, any sense of self and ownership. Look at the opposite of a generous heart. It is often that sense of withholding, the voice of me and mine and this belongs to me tends to be very loud. It is frequently experienced as this sense of contractedness. So to challenge all ideas of self as a practice of generosity is to challenge all ideas as I and you. So as an insight practice, the cultivation of generosity is an investigation of every area of our life where a sense of ownership prevails. And there can be a lot of places. Think of the my. My body, my mind, my thoughts, my space, my time, and of course the big one, my opinions, my views, my judgments. 
How often this can be a thread that runs through our days. And we see whenever the sense of my, of ownership arises, so too does the sense of you. Now, this separation between I and you, rooted in ownership, rooted in the sense of possessiveness, is not an emotionally neutral space. We see whenever the I and the you, the mine and the yours, prevails, these are mostly the places where we suffer, where there is fear, where there's obsession, where there's ill will that can flourish. So we bring in the cultivation of generosity, of not holding anywhere, of not clinging to every, anything, of not owning anything. It is an investigation in the service of liberating the heart, ending division and freeing us from that imprisonment of a world defined by a separate self. Now, generosity, in my understanding, dana as, as, a, as an investigation and as an insight practice, really ties very directly into three of the primary areas of, the, of insight that the Buddha talked about. Anicca, impermanence. Well, doesn't this just sort of make a mockery out of clinging? Doesn't the very reality of impermanence, that nothing can stand still, nothing can truly be owned or belong to me in my thoughts, my views, my opinions, my space, the understanding of impermanence really actually is very directly related to these places of contractedness. So where there is that sense of contracting, holding on to anything at all, it is so useful to have that knowing, that reflection, that somehow in that moment we set ourselves against the flow of how things actually are. The understanding of unsatisfactoriness, particularly the unreliability of conditions, again, this tendency to grasp, to hold, in a way is a sort of denial of that reality. The teaching of non-self, well, how does generosity relate to or cultivate and deepen this understanding of non-self? Because we see, when we see in our own experience the truth, that there is no abiding, self-independent self-existence, no centrality of me, then all of the contractedness we see in grasping and holding and clinging is essentially in the service of selfing rather than non-selfing. So we put ourselves against, or in a place of argument with the way things actually are. Now, like all of the ennobling qualities of the heart, the teaching of generosity is building upon something all of us have touched upon and experienced in our lives. I think all of us have known moments when there is an unhesitating generosity where we reach out without, um, without strategies simply to help someone who is struggling, when we make space for someone, when we find ourselves in moments able to let go of judgments and opinions and views, 
And we all have actually also experienced the generosity of others. And most of us know in our lives the loveliness of those moments. The loveliness of those moments, that they leave so few residues in the mind. And so the teaching of generosity is actually building upon something that we have all glimpsed and to know they are generosity, those moments of non-holding, really do not have to be accidents. They can be cultivated. And where do we cultivate generosity? Well, the answer is obvious. In every single moment, there is that contractedness. There is a sense of holding about, about building, uh, building a world upon our holding. When the Dalai Lama speaks about compassion, he, he once said that he, and I'm remembering that generosity is part of the fabric of compassion, he once said that he thinks of, of, of uh, compassion as being the radicalism of our time. I have to think about what, what does he mean by that? What, what is, it, is it that is radical about compassion? What is it that is radical about generosity? Well, I think part of it for me lies when I reflect upon this. I really acknowledge how much of this practice is not about what we feel, but about what we do. But about what we do what we commit ourselves to, the ground that we stand upon. And in this sense, we don't actually have to feel generous in order to be generous. We don't have to feel generous in order to be generous with ourselves, to be generous with others. We don't have to feel generous to cultivate generosity in the midst of holding and clinging. And I think this sense of we don't have to feel generous in order to be generous, I think, cultivates one of our primary Western areas of holding. You know, that's only right to do something if we feel like it. If we feel like it. It's a big piece in Western culture. It sort of defines our sort of, you know, individualism, our kind of liberty of self. You know, that if, it, if I feel like it, I do it. If I don't feel like it, I don't. Now, imagine, look, look at the times when we are withholding of time, attention, space, kindness, when we don't feel generous. What's actually going on in those times? What could be cultivated? Now, imagine on a retreat, for example, if we said, we only want you to come and sit if you really, really, really feel like it. And if you don't feel like it, please don't come. Or if we said on, said on retreat, you know, oh, we only want you to keep the precepts if you really feel like it. Otherwise, you know, it doesn't matter. Or, you know, really only go do some walking practice if you really, really, really feel like it. Now, isn't it interesting? Now, you, you also notice on retreats that we don't take registration. We don't drag people out of their rooms, you know, come and sit. And yet, you show up. Do you always feel like it? Probably not. And yet somehow the reason we show up is I think somehow we are guided by something much deeper than what we just feel like in the moment. 
that we're guided much more and motivated by our sense of aspiration, our sense of motivation, our sense of commitment, and actually knowing what might be more deeply valuable than what I feel like in the moment. This, I think, what happens on a, re- on a retreat has some... I think it's very important to translate this into the rest of our lives. What is it like to cultivate kindness even when I might feel ill will? What does it mean to cultivate generosity even though I might feel very contracted and even want to hold on to that contracted? What does it mean to release my opinions, my views, my judgments as an act of generosity rather than just swimming with that tide? The Buddha speaks very, very much about how this cultivation of generosity leads very directly into the deepening of the practice. He says, a noble disciple gains gladness connected with the Dhamma. Gains gladness connected with the Dhamma. Finds joy in being connected with the Dharma, with what is most valuable. When the heart is gladdened, rapture arises. For one uplifted by rapture, the body becomes calm. One calm in the body feels happy. For one who is happy, the mind becomes concentrated. This is entering the stream of the Dharma, developing the recollection of generosity. Developing the recollection of generosity. In a very real way, I think generosity in its deepest sense is really speaking of a heart and mind that is deeply established in courage, in fearlessness, in kindness and insight, that understands really the freedom and the happiness of learning to let go, learning to release, learning to relinquish in all of the places of holding and clinging and grasping. That sense of generosity is born of deeply understanding the pain and the sorrow of the contracted and fearful heart that really holds at its center a sense of insufficiency. And when we look at the places of holding in our lives, the places where we cling, the places where we protect and defend and feel that we need to have more, how much underlying it, there is often this very core belief in a sense of insufficiency and threat. The fear of not having enough, the fear of being bereft, the fear of being no one, the fear of being nothing, the fear of having nothing. How much this really is the driver of much of the clinging that we experience in our life. And generosity is actually deeply questioning the ideology of insufficiency. The ideology of insufficiency. Now this is, of course, needing to acknowledge that there are countless people in this world who do not have enough in terms of food and shelter and clothing and and all of that is needed to live. 
But what the Buddha is speaking to here is much more this sort of ideology that can live in our hearts even when we have every single thing that we need. Still, the, the, the ideology of insufficiency prevailing. And how much that that is the driver then of holding and clinging. So generosity is actually a teaching and a cultivation of actually knowing the painfulness of that ideology of insufficiency. And instead of turning towards craving and clinging, turning towards the cultivation of generosity and relatedness. So generosity, I think, is spoken about in three ways, particularly in the Mahayana teachings. The first way that generosity is spoken about is on material generosity. As the Buddha said, a disciple of liberation is not possessive of anything. Not possessive of anything. It is why, you know, it is one reason why in this teaching, this path, so much emphasis is given to the development of the formal meditative practice. Why? Not because we're clocking up so many hours on a cushion or, you know, so many hours on our walking path, but because in the formal meditative practice, in the deepening of that, the deepening of stillness, the deepening of calm, the deepening of collectedness, there is the opportunity to really discover an inwardly generated happiness, an inwardly generated joy. In that discovery, so much of our belief systems are questioned about, I need this to make me happy. I need to become this to make me happy. I need to get rid of this in order to be happy. The endless agitation of of really being hostage to the world of conditions, the world of conditions being the gatekeeper of our happiness and joy. In the formal meditative deepening, just beginning to touch upon that inwardly generated joy, inwardly generated happiness, actually does so much to release the whole world of clinging and grasping and sense of insufficiency. The second dimension of generosity spoken about as the gift of fearlessness. Not needing always to be comfortable first and then to be generous afterwards. But the many dimensions to the gift of fearlessness, being a refuge to those who have no place of safety, who are afraid and vulnerable, giving protection to those who have no protection, small things of taking a small creature out of harm's way, the gift being a friend to those who have no friends, being able to listen, the gift of non-judgment, the gift of kindness. The gift of fearlessness is also saying no to the causes of suffering, whether in the world or in ourselves. That is an act of generosity, to be able to say no to the the movements of of selfing and clinging and, and holding, 
that actually lead to contractedness can be can be born of generosity, not suppression, not judgment, not forcing. This gift of fearlessness is something in practice that we learn to offer to ourselves. We can see that aversion and fear are the proximate causes of disconnection in our life. That aversion and fear are the proximate causes of separation making between people in communities and families in our world. But inwardly, there is so much that we can have the pattern, the habit of disconnecting from, so much that we can turn away from, condemn or dismiss or reject. And we can do this so often that we have forget what it means to be a friend to ourselves, to offer that gift of protection to our own hearts and minds. The gift of the Dharma the third dimension of generosity. Primarily it was meant sharing the teachings of liberation, but perhaps it's a gift we need to offer to ourselves with some frequency. Really knowing in ourself, beginning to know in ourself what thoughts, what acts, what patterns lead to suffering and what leads to the end of suffering. The gift of the Dharma is challenging the gap, I think, that can exist in such a frustrating way in our lives between what we know to be true and then what we find ourselves entertaining. So the gift of the Dharma is this ongoing alignment inwardly with liberation, with awakening, with what eases suffering. Ajahn Chah once said, The Buddha taught us to lay down those things that lack a real abiding essence. If you lay down everything, you will see the truth. If you don't, you won't. That's the way it is. And when wisdom, when insight awakens within you, you will see the truth wherever you look. That is all that you will see. Sensing how generosity may be cultivated in our days. The easing of contractedness, the easing in places of holding and clinging, the cultivation of kindness as a path of awakening and as part of the fabric, the foundation of the fabric of compassion, I want to end this morning just a, a small poem, I think, speaks to this. The old man must have stopped our car two dozen times to climb out and gather into his hands the small toads blinded by our light and leaping live drops of rain. The rain was falling a mist about his white hair, and I kept saying, you can't save them all, accept it, get back in. We've got places to go. But leathery hands full of wet brown knife, knee-deep in the summer roadside grass, he just smiled and said, they have places to go to. So, taking care of the moment with generosity, taking care of the moment with fearlessness, taking care of the moment with that understanding of of what a generous heart might be 
and might look like in all the moments where it feels to be most absent. This is, I think, the path of insight, the path of awakening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.